0: Hey, it's Jason Moon. I'm a senior reporter and producer on the document team from NHPR. My latest project, Bear Brook Season 2, A True Crime Story, is out now. And maybe you haven't followed the Bear Brook feed, so we're dropping the whole series here. You'll find out later in this series that the story is not over. So if you want to get updates, make sure you subscribe to Bear Brook wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. There have been a lot of stories told about Sharon Johnson. My favorite ones are the ones told by her friends. Connie Howard met Sharon in 1977. Probably, Connie says, in the laundry room of their apartment building in Manchester, New Hampshire. Connie was 17, living on her own with a newborn baby. Sharon was 25, another young single mom.
1: I think I thought I could maybe learn a lot from her. She was just really smart and had her act together. You know, she had a good job. She um, had a nice apartment and seemed to be climbing the ladder.
0: Sharon was an engineer at a computer manufacturing company. Connie says back then in the late 70s, she'd never met a woman who was an engineer. Sharon had her own car, was saving to buy her own house, To Connie, Sharon just seemed confident, in control of her own life.
1: Made you think that you could do it. You know, a 17-year-old girl with a baby, I didn't have any direction. So it, you know, really was a good thing to see
0: another woman like that. The two of them hit it off. Connie felt herself nestling in under Sharon's wing. Connie needed a driver's license, so Sharon let her borrow her car to take the test. Connie needed a job, so Sharon got her one at the computer company. Connie felt aimless in life, so Sharon gave her a shove.
1: She said, if you don't have a career, you'll amount to nothing. So you need to do something. It was blunt. At first, I was kind of hurt by it, but then
0: it motivated me. Connie went to school and became a hairstylist, made a long career of it.
1: So I think I did her hair even before I had a license. I think that we kind of maybe had a bottle of wine and I cut her hair. Yeah. But I think about her a lot. I've thought a lot about her over the last 30 years.
2: The absolute laughter that we had when I was learning the computer. I was terrified of that thing.
0: Lucy Holt was another friend of Sharon's.
2: She would call me up twice or three times a week, and we would go over another aspect of using the computer. She showed me where to go to play solitaire, and I said, oh, my gosh, it's in color. (laughs) And so I called her the next day and said, Sharon, guess what? I set up the printer all by myself. We just, we were just rolling on the floor, laughing so hard.
0: Lucy, like Connie, viewed Sharon with a mix of admiration and fascination. Sharon could do things that just seemed out of reach to Lucy.
2: I thought she was funny. I thought she was brash. She was, she was one of the guys. She could tell a raunchy joke. She could, she could she could just relax with the guys. and they accepted her like that. She was more... and I can't say masculine because she wasn't. Um, it's just a different. It's just different than what everybody had been brought up to be at the time and I was I was such a um, I could hide in plain sight did my entire life I hid in plain sight so somebody that open was extraordinary Uh, I I wish I had known her better I wish I had known her longer yeah
0: In 1988, Sharon Johnson was pregnant with her second child. Her friends were planning a baby shower. Then one day in July, Sharon didn't come home from work. The next morning, Sharon's body was found in a wooded rural construction site in Bedford, New Hampshire. She'd been stabbed and strangled.
1: When I heard the news, it was devastating. I had nightmares, I couldn't sleep, it was horrible. And then I think about the horror that she must have been going through at the time, when that is being done to you. I can't imagine what was going through her, her mind.
0: For the people close to Sharon, it was the beginning of an excruciating time. Over the next few years, as police investigated and news stories were written and court hearings were held, they learned what happened. Sharon had been killed by her own husband with the help of two teenagers.
1: I always think about how happy she was and how tragic that that happened at the happiest time of her life.
0: Connie and Lucy grieved, for years and for decades. It's now been 35 years. Sharon's friends each figured out, in their own way, how to come to terms with the fact of her death, with the story of how she was killed. And now, people are telling them they're wrong. They don't know how their friend died. Only one of the three men charged with Sharon's murder is still alive, Jason Carroll. At 19 years old, he confessed to the crime. But for the three decades since, He's maintained his innocence from inside prison. And now, Jason has a new team of lawyers and advocates, and his case is back in court. For people close to Sharon, it's a hard thing to swallow. For some, it's offensive. For some, it's confusing. I think for all of them, it feels like a violation. This is their story. Who are these strangers to rewrite the history of a person they loved. Lucy Holt is wrestling with all that, and also wrestling with the part of her that's open to another version of this story, a version where Jason Carroll was not involved.
2: I don't want him to be guilty. If he says, I really didn't do it, I mean... We're, we're, we all expect proof for things. you know we expect proof. How do you prove something? How do you prove an I didn't do it? and And then of course we hear we hear that everyone in prison is innocent. Everyone says I didn't do it. I didn't do it. Um, so he really has an uphill fight. I hope he understands that it's not just for himself. Um, we have been under the understanding that the person who did it uh, was in prison, and we didn't have to think about it anymore. Um, but if he didn't, you know, we have a, have to share that guilt that the wrong person is there. And we can't be satisfied anymore. We can't be satisfied with the endings.
0: The stakes are high for you too. Sta-
2: yes, they are. It's our guilt. It's, it, it's, it, and it has been right along, we just didn't know it. We were satisfied, some very happy, some like, yes, we got him, but. What if we didn't?
0: As for Connie Howard, she's pretty blunt about how she feels.
1: They think none of that ever happened. Yeah. Hmm.
0: Yeah. How, is, how does that make you feel? Disgusted. Connie aims that disgust right at Jason Carroll.
1: What are you gonna, nothing ever happened? What happened, she just died? I think it's wrong, because it did happen. And you were involved.
0: Why do you believe in that that, that version of the story?
1: I don't know why I believe that. As opposed to, what, as opposed to, who came up with that version of the story? (laughs) You know what I mean? Then how do we, who said that, that that's how it happened? Somebody had to say that that's how it happened. So obviously it happened.
0: In the late 1980s, police and prosecutors told a true crime story about what happened to Sharon Johnson.
1: We got there, she struggled. Jason drove a knife in her back.
0: For 35 years, that story has profoundly shaped the lives of many people, from Jason Carroll to Sharon's friends and family to the people who worked on this case.
3: There were going to be continued and repeated attacks that the police coerced, intimidated, promised, threatened.
4: Psychologically, I think that they ripped him to shreds. It was just sending a shark out on a bloody piece of
2: bait.
0: What happens when the official story is challenged after all these years, when alternate versions are told by new storytellers.
3: I just hope there's less complete and utter trust in the system after this series. Jason Carroll is where he belongs, where he deserves to be, and he needs to stay there. He took away my mother's life, my life.
5: This story has been told about Jason for 33 years, and he cannot escape it. It's just a story just a story.
0: This is Bear Brook Season 2, a true crime story. I'm Jason Moon. Last November, Jason Carroll was appearing in court for the first time in three decades. I was there, sitting in the back of the courtroom. For over a year and a half, I'd been poring over thousands and thousands of documents in Jason's case and interviewing many of the people involved, the ones who were still alive. I'd gotten used to thinking of the case as something that had already happened, a story from the 80s that I knew all the endings to. But today was uncharted. Something new was about to happen in Jason's case. The courtroom was full. Jason's family and friends, Sharon's family and friends. It was a kind of tense reunion. Many of them were just kids the last time Jason was before a judge. Before the hearing, the court staff did their best to make sure the two sides didn't bump into each other in the hallways. But now they're sitting in the same small, modern-looking courtroom, divided only by the center aisle.
2: I'll
3: rise from the
4: honorable court. Okay. Good morning. This is the matter of State of New Hampshire versus Jason Carroll. This is a hearing on
0: the. We're all here because Jason has applied for early release from prison. You can do that in New Hampshire after you've served at least two-thirds of your sentence. The judge who will decide is William Delker. He's soft-spoken, wears glasses and a bow tie. You could mistake him for, say, a prep school debate coach. But in reality, he's a former prosecutor who handled some of the most serious homicides in recent New Hampshire history, including the case involving the state's only death row inmate.
4: So why don't I have both sides introduce themselves for the record, please?
3: Good morning, Honor. Charles Buke, appearing on behalf of the state.
6: Good Cynthia Musso, Your Honor, on behalf of Jason Carroll, who appears to my left. Morning.
0: Jason is dressed in a forest green prison jumpsuit. One arm is in a sling from a recent surgery. The other arm is handcuffed to a leather strap around his waist. His bald head reflects the fluorescent lighting. Jason's lawyer, Cynthia Musso, is with the New England Innocence Project. Cynthia is a former public defender, and she's no stranger to this courtroom. Half the bailiffs and clerks seem to recognize her. Her hair is dyed with deep red streaks. One side of her head is buzzed. Cynthia is the first to speak.
6: This is an extraordinary hearing for the court to consider whether an extraordinary person— who was involved in an extraordinary case, should be given extraordinary relief.
0: It only takes her a few minutes to tell the court Jason was wrongfully convicted. And the state is not telling the whole story.
6: However, this narrative that the state has woven is inaccurate and incomplete.
0: Cynthia says this is a clear case of a coerced false confession.
6: I could point out how Jason's statements were so inconsistent with the undisputed forensic evidence in this case that it was more probable that he was guessing in response to interrogation questions than that he had any actual knowledge. In fact, looking at these inconsistencies, it is shocking that Jason was ever even a credible suspect, let alone convicted.
0: But, Cynthia says, today is not about Jason's guilt or innocence. It's about whether he's ready and whether it's safe to reintegrate him into society. Jason has a series of witnesses here who say yes. One of them is a corrections officer, Joseph Laramie, who supervised Jason for over 20 years in the prison.
1: It was during my time in Northwood that
0: I began to notice that Jason had become a leader and a mentor. Not the type that preaches to people, but, but the type that, that leads by example and through his actions. One of my duties in the visitor room was purchasing toys. Jason would put all the toys together.
4: Groan and grumble the whole time he was doing it because he didn't want to be putting together dollhouses. But I could tell he liked it. He enjoyed it. Because he knew the kids were going to enjoy it.
0: Another witness for Jason is a man who was incarcerated with him for 13 years, Joseph Lascaz. He's now a respected advocate with the ACLU of New Hampshire. Joseph says Jason was a mentor to him who left him with a powerful message the night before Joseph left prison. He said, I want you to promise me that you will never come back here. I want you to promise me that you will spend as much time with your family as you can because they are the most important thing. And I want you to promise me that you're gonna go out there and make a difference with who you become. As he says this, he motions to the pews on Jason's side of the room, where a few young men that Joseph mentored are sitting.
1: Jay, I'm doing that. I promise you, I'm doing everything that you asked me to do. This is proof that it's working.
0: When Joseph finishes his statement, the prosecutor for the state, Charles Buca, cross-examines him. Charles wears black-framed glasses. His dark hair is just graying at the edges. And he uses the moment to make a point that he'll make again and again during this hearing.
3: Based on what you've told us here today, uh, you were convicted of some criminal offenses, right? And uh, you did your time? I did. And you took responsibility for your actions? I did. And in fact, you even actually just told us you apologized to one of the victims of your criminal offenses? Correct. And that was helpful to you yep. in taking responsibility, right? Yes, that
4: came from the counsel of Jason. Right.
3: And that was helpful for you to move on with your life and become the man you've become today? That is correct. And be successful reintegrating into society. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. And do you think that it would be detrimental for someone who's trying to reintegrate into society to not accept responsibility for their criminal conduct?
6: He he can speak to his personal experience, which he's done, and he's said that,
2: but...
0: Jason Carroll will not accept responsibility for the crime. In the face of that fact, Charles, the prosecutor, and some in Sharon's family say Jason's achievements in prison ring hollow. Thomas Eaton is Sharon's nephew. I've heard all day how good somebody's doing in jail and how good they're helping others. And I can appreciate that, and that's great. But that whole time, all that's been going on, there are two people that are no longer with us. There's a woman, a young woman, with all the promise in the world that never had a chance to just weigh any of that. I was raised to have accountability and responsibility. I have not been perfect in my life, but I certainly would not do this to someone. If someone does this to somebody, it should take some accountability and responsibility. Thank you. Thank you. After both sides have had their say, Judge Delker calls a recess. And he says he'll come back in a few minutes with his decision. He's going to decide Jason's fate right then and there. I was shocked by this. I think everyone was. The attorneys had written motions that were in the hundreds of pages. There was more than two and a half hours of testimony. It wouldn't be unusual to wait weeks or longer for a decision on something like this. Instead, We waited just 15 nervous minutes. Finally, the bailiff tells us to rise. Judge Delker comes back to his seat. He tells Jason to remain standing to receive his ruling. Um,
4: This is, to this date, one of the most notorious crimes in recent New Hampshire history. You confessed to your participation in uh, this murder-for-hire plot and you and your accomplice, Mr. Pfaff, kidnapped and murdered a seven-and-a-half-month pregnant woman. And you stood by while your accomplice sexually assaulted her as she lay dying, dead or dying there in that gravel pit. And you were paid $5,000 for those inhuman acts, and I don't say inhumane, but inhuman acts, by the victim's own husband. Your failure to accept responsibility and to cooperate when you had the opportunity to do so meant that your co-conspirators have escaped justice for this brutal, brutal murder that has taken Sharon Johnson from her family and her loved ones cut you a break would utterly undermine the public's confidence in the criminal justice system.
0: Jason Carroll's petition for early release is denied. Judge Delker orders him back to prison. The hearing is over. Sharon's half of the room lets out a sigh of relief and silent celebration. Just outside the courtroom, Sharon's daughter, Melanie Eaton, speaks tearfully to local reporters. Her cousin stands by her, his arm wrapped protectively around Melanie's shoulder. Melanie says in the run-up to the hearing, too much attention had been paid to Jason and his innocence claims. She feels like her mother had been forgotten.
1: People need to see the other side of the story. They need to understand she was a good person more than anybody will
0: understand. And she deserved to be here, but unfortunately she's not. Meanwhile, Jason's side of the room is also in tears. Most of them leave quickly and silently after the ruling comes down. When I try to talk to Jason's lawyer, Cynthia, she tells me, not today. Later, though, we did talk on the phone.
5: Jason has never been believed in court ever, ever, not once.
0: Cynthia was heartbroken and angry. She says the ruling was punishment for Jason maintaining his innocence. She says he could have lied and shown remorse, and he may well have been let out. People perceive
5: that everyone in prison says that they're innocent, which is not true. And also that it's this, like, thing that selfish people do. Jason just lost this hearing because he maintains his innocence.
0: As an innocence lawyer, Cynthia is used to people not believing her clients. But it still stings, the utter confidence many judges, prosecutors, or just people in general have in criminal convictions. For Cynthia, the odds can feel insurmountable. Even metaphysical. Convictions take
5: on this mythical power. You know, I'm I'm I, I was raised Catholic and although I'm not now, I will reference a Catholic <laughs> there's this belief that when you are a Catholic and the priest gives you communion that the bread turns into the body of Jesus, like a literal human flesh. This is essentially the same thing as what happens. Once this conviction happens, it's like that story is what happened.
0: Is the state of New Hampshire's story, the one Judge Delker just retold, the one that led to Jason Carroll's conviction, is that what really happened to Sharon Johnson? Or is it just an illusion? To find out, we have to go back to the beginning. That's after the break. I'll never forget the first time I heard the tape. I'd read the transcripts, but they didn't hold a candle to actually hearing the words. The tape is a partial recording of a police interrogation of Jason Carroll in 1989. I've spent the last year and a half studying it, wondering about it, thinking, even dreaming about it. The tape is memorable, partly because of its intensity. Two of the detectives who were there called it one of the most emotional interrogations they'd ever seen. But here's the biggest reason I'm fascinated by it. For over 30 years, Jason Carroll has been locked in a prison because of the power of the words on this tape. And only the power of words on tape. There is no other evidence that ties him to the murder of Sharon Johnson. So the question of whether you believe what he's saying in the tape becomes everything. Jason is held in a state prison in Concord, New Hampshire. That's about five minutes from where I live. Whenever I drive by the prison, I wonder, is every passing day that Jason wakes up inside there adding to the weight of a staggering injustice or is Jason simply guilty? Sometimes I think, if I just listen hard enough to the tape, I'll be able to tell.
5: Why is that? I mean, you know, this stuff. You're not really... You're not the,
2: I've told you before, when you tell the truth, you have to want to tell the truth. They I want so much to get this over with. But could not doing it. it's not that
0: easy. The audio quality of the tape isn't great, so I'll repeat some parts of it as we go. The tape has also been partially redacted. Sometimes people's names are bleeped out. In the tape, you can hear Jason being interrogated by four officers. They're at the police station in Bedford, the town where Sharon Johnson's body was discovered. The day before, police interrogated Jason for five hours. By this point in the tape, they've been at it for another three hours.
1: Jason,
2: if you had the friggin' knife in your hand and you stabbed your top. Yeah, If you got you got what Jack was told yeah, you and you guys moved to town later on that night. We'll
0: back. On. Over the many hours of interrogations, Jason has gone from denying any involvement to now saying he witnessed Sharon Johnson's murder. But the police still believe Jason is holding something back. They're frustrated. They don't understand why Jason won't just spit it out. One of the detectives launches into a monologue. What is it going to take? The detective asks, what is it going to take? On tape, now listen to me clearly. One day in the future, this tape, which can never be destroyed or altered, will be played before a jury of people that will have, on tape, listen to me clearly, that will have understood the horror of the type of killing that Sharon Johnson was subjected to.
3: Of that Sharon
5: Johnson was to.
0: They will hear a voice that we will identify as Jason Carroll, a person that we are looking to to help us bring forth those people. Jason jumps in and finishes the detective's sentence. He says, who did it? Then the detective goes on, who actually did this entire uh, ugly, unforgivable, horrendous act? And they will have to conclude if Jason Carroll has the the decency
3: decency. to express any remorse, and that expression must come forth by a willingness
2: to be truthful. Why, in God's name, would you tell us this much and still leave out the
3: truth, the essence of the truth? I have not seen the breaking point in you.
0: I have not seen the breaking point in you. The detective shouts.
2: If you put a knife in that woman, I want to know.
0: If you had to pick one moment that started all of this, that was it. Depending on what you believe, this was the moment the truth was wrenched free or the moment a lie that refuses to die was born. For the rest of this series, we're going to unpack that moment. And believe me, there is so much to unpack. Including one thing I haven't told you yet. One of the cops you heard interrogating Jason Carroll was his mom. Who want
2: the truth you? Do you think i love you when he <laughs> I don't know. I don't
0: know. People who tell true crime stories, people like me, do this kind of stuff all the time. We save a surprising detail for when we need to make sure you stay interested. It can make for better storytelling. It can be manipulative. In this case, I did it, and I'm telling you I did it, as a demonstration. Because journalists are not the only people who tell true crime stories. Detectives, lawyers, witnesses, suspects, they all tell stories about what happened in a given case. And like every storyteller, they make choices about what to put in and what to leave out, what to emphasize and what to ignore. And sometimes those choices can change everything. How did Officer Karen Carroll end up extracting a murder confession from her own son? In Karen's version of the story, it's a lot more complicated than just what you hear in the tape. It's
3: been a nightmare. A total nightmare.
0: Karen told me I needed to understand that she was caught between two roles.
3: I was not only a police officer. But I was a mother, you know, and mothers will do whatever they have to do to try to protect their kids.
0: Karen became a police officer in 1984, a few years before Sharon Johnson's murder. Karen was a patrol officer in Bedford. Back then, it was a mostly rural town in southern New Hampshire.
3: I enjoyed it. Yeah, I enjoyed it. It was... um,
0: It was different.
3: Um, I am not one that can sit behind a desk at a computer. That's not for me.
0: Her husband, Jack Carroll, was in the National Guard, a Vietnam vet. Together, they were raising four kids. Jason was the oldest, Karen's son from a previous relationship. Then, in July of 1988, Karen's job at the police station got really interesting. The biggest case the town had ever seen. The murder of Sharon Johnson. The first homicide in Bedford in at least 20 years, maybe more. Karen had a front row seat. The gossip around the station, the flood of tips coming in, the reporters descending on the town. These were dramatic times in Bedford, even if it didn't have all that much to do with Karen. She was a patrol officer, not a detective. So she didn't have a part to play. Until she met the detective in charge of solving the case. That other voice you heard on the tape. A man named Roland Lammy. The truth,
3: the essence of the truth. I have not seen a breaking point in you. Sergeant Lammy, I wanted to trust him. I wanted to trust him.
0: What do you think of Lammy now?
3: I can't say what I think of him. He's just a bald-headed, big-feeling motherfucker.
0: That's next time on Bear Brook Season 2, A True Crime Story. True Crime Story is reported and produced by me, Jason Moon. It's edited by Katie Collinari. Additional reporting and research by Paul Kuno Booth. Editing help from Lauren Chuljin, Daniela Ali, Sarah Plored, Taylor Quimby, Mara Hoplamazian, Jung Yoon Han, and Todd Bookman. Our news director is Dan Barrick. Our director of podcasts is Rebecca Lavoie. Fact checking by Danya Suleiman. Sarah Plord created our original artwork, as well as our website, bearbrookpodcast.com, where you can see pictures of Sharon Johnson and other materials from the case. Additional photography and video by Gabby Lozada. Original music for the series was created by me, Jason Moon. Bearbrook is a production of the document team at New Hampshire Public Radio.